So we're looking at body 35 today. And last week we looked at the beginning of Guru Nanak Dev Ji's five stages of awakening, of realization. So here Guruji continues that conversation, that description. And Guru starts by confirming what he had talked about in the last verse. And Guruji gives this, the first stage, its name. And Guru says, Taram Khand Ka Eho Taram. So, Guruji is talking about the last stage here, saying that which has been mentioned, that is called Taram Khand. And this is the characteristics of that Taram Khand. This is what I've been describing are the characteristics of the first stage known as Taram Khand. Now, before we go into the meaning, it's worth looking at the spelling of the word Khand and what we mean by that word. So, if we look here, the word Khand normally has an Ankar underneath it and it can have a number of different meanings. So the word Khand means a province or a state. So a large area in a country or a large area of land belonging to a particular area. So the closest thing that we have would be something like a province or a state or a county. And the word Khand also means to take th something large and break it into smaller pieces. So Khand would be small portions or small sections. And that's all the same spelling with an Ankar at the end of the last letter. And finally, the word Khand has also been used in Gurbani to mean sugar, which is also something that we use in Punjabi language in certain regions today. So Khand can mean a large area of land, a portion or a section, a piece of something, or could be the word sugar. Now, if we look at another spelling of the word Khand, where we take the Ankur out, but we have a Sihari on the last letter here. So usually when you have a word which begins with an Ankur and that's been replaced by a Sihari, then it means within that noun. So if we say that Khand with an Ankur means a large piece of land or a state or a province, then with a Sihari it means within that land, within that state. So when we look at the Khands, we can see that when Guru Nanak Dev Ji talks about such Khand, he uses this spelling here to mean within such Khand, within the state of such, such Khand of Nirankar. So there Guruji uses this particular spelling with a Sihari there. But here we see Taram Khand and Gyan Khand Karam Khand and Saram Khand, all spelt in a third way, which is called Mukta. It doesn't have a Sihari or an Ankar at the end of it. Now, so far, none of the major scholars um, of Japji Sahib, the most respected within, within Sikh, who've written the most authorized and approved Satiqs, have mentioned why this is spelt in this way. So the major scholars being Professor Saib Singh, Sant Singh Maskeen, Gyani Gurbachan Singh Bindrawale, Kavi Santok Singh. None of these have actually mentioned why. Um, so this is a theory that I'm working on. It is something that I hope to have once the Japji Saib has been converted into a book to have worked out why this particular spelling of Khand has been chosen. There are a number of theories. One is that we would take off the word Khand when it's missing a preposition word. So what that means is normally what we mean by Taram Khand is Taram Da Khand, the 
land of taram. So where you would be missing a preposition word like that, like da, taram da khand, there you would indicate that that word is missing by having the onkad removed. So that's one idea. Another is that taram khand is actually a double-barreled word. In English, we would call it a polysyllabic word. So if we look at words like lunch box or shoe box or post box, the word box is attached to another bigger word. So in that particular case, the fact that those two words are joined could be a reason why kand has not got an onkar underneath it. And in that particular case, the word in English doesn't normally have a gender, but any words in Punjabi or Gurmukhi or most of the Indian, North Indian languages have a gender to them. So then we would see that possibly the word like lunchbox, for example, would take the gender of the first word. So the word box would be masculine if the word lunch was masculine. But if postbox, for example, post was a feminine word, for example, then you would see that word as a feminine word. So we can see examples of that, for example, where Gurbani talks about taram khand ka eho taram, gyan khand ka akho karam. But then Guruji says saram khand ki bani jor, karam khand, saram khand ki bani roop and karam khand ki bani jor. So there we're seeing ka and ki. So we need to know which words are we deriving those masculine and feminine from. So those are all the, all the different sort of areas that I'm going to be looking at and hopefully when this is converted into a book we actually have the answers to some of those because so far I've yet to see anyone provide an explanation for that. So that's just a little bit about the spelling of that word kand because we're going to be revisiting this idea lots of different times. Now we can look at the word kand with an ankur and we can try and decide which of the three different definitions we're going to apply to understand what it is that we're talking about here. It is clearly nothing to do with sugar, so we can rule that out. And we can either say that it is a portion or a section of something. So if we see that we are talking about an entire path, and then we can say the first part of that, the first section of that is the use of the word kand, or the other use is the word kand as a land. So you are visiting five different lands, metaphorically speaking, to signify five different stages that you're going through. What's really interesting is that Gurbani is at this stage describing in detail what Dharam Khand and Gyan Khand and these different stages are. But what you'll notice is Throughout the rest of Guru Granth Sahib Ji, Gurbani hardly anywhere uses this word Taram Khand, Gyan Khand. So with the exception of Sach Khand, and even that very sparingly, what we can conclude is that even though Gurbani is now talking about these things, even though Guru Nanak Dev Ji is discussing the mechanics of awakening, that these aren't the everyday goals of a Sikh. One of the things that we have to be aware of on our own spiritual journey is that we don't start to chase after these different levels. Because Gurbani has ruled out this idea that we have to try and gain different heights of spirituality. In the ways of the yoga traditions, we would see that there are very many spiritual powers that can come to you and we talked about riddhya and siddhya but again Gurbani rejects this idea that we have to chase after these things. These things will come to you but it's not the goal of a Sikh. And the danger here is that if we make any of these khands one of our goals then it actually adds to our ego. So what we would be saying is I am progressing on my spiritual journey, my own spiritual awakening and I have reached this stage. So you end up actually taking ownership and you end up holding on to what you think is quite a noble thing to hold on to. It eventually becomes a ego. And sometimes we see that people are very much interested in, in, in how far or how much they've earned. They, people talk about their own kamai, how much Simran have they done, how much meditation have they done. So they're holding on to this idea that I'm somehow spiritually 
ahead or further than, than somebody else. And this is something to be aware of. So the goal of a Sikh, we can conclude by the fact that Guru Nanak Dev Ji and Gurbani hasn't talked throughout Guru Granth Sahib Ji about reaching certain levels. We can say that the goal of a Sikh is to live their life in praise of the Divine and in constant remembrance or constant awareness and this is achieved through Naam. So the goal of a Sikh is to constantly be in this state of praise or in Naam, but there should be no thought of self-gain or self-achievement or some sort of spiritual progression or self-reward. And we can look at what Guruji is actually saying here about Taram Khand. Taram Khand ka eho Taram. So Taram Khand we can translate as a state of taram, being in taram, being in a state of righteousness. Taram can mean divine living or the right way to live. So taram khandaka eho taram. You'll notice that the first taram doesn't have an anchor in that line, but in the second taram it does have an anchor in that line. So taram khand, we can say those two words are joined, which is why it doesn't have an anchor. But in the last word taram, there taram means having a purpose. Now again the word taram has several different meanings. Today we generally tend to use taram to mean religion. But in the old days the word taram would have been used to mean what is your purpose in life? What is your calling? What is the thing that you are meant to be doing? So for example we would have said that for a carpenter carpentry was his taram. And we don't mean that that's just his job, it's just what he is, it's what he becomes, it is what his entire life becomes about. So for a teacher, teaching becomes their taram, it's whatever you do to your fullest potential. So that's one meaning of the word taram, the main characteristic of that person. So here Guruji is saying that what I have just described in the verse before is the main characteristic, the taram of taram khand the main characteristic of Taram Khand ka eho Taram. So the above previous verse is the characteristic of Taram Khand. And if we summarize what we've heard in the last verse, we can see that the ordinary person in life is attached to Maya, to the physical world, to the material world. And so our ordinary lives are full of concern for ourselves, our own beings, our own lives, our own families, our own possessions. But when we start walking on this path towards realization, one of the first things is that we realize that the material world isn't the ultimate reality, that isn't the most important thing. This world is a taramsal. So this is a temporary stopping point. This world isn't the final thing that we have to put all of our focus onto. This world has been described as a karampumi, the place where you come to do the right things. You act in a certain way. You do the right sort of living and lifestyle. And so we live in this world to realize our highest potential. So that's the most important thing that we can do. The most important action or karam, the most important karam that we can do is to live in, in the most appropriate way on this earth. And that is to realize our highest potential. That is the fullest potential of mankind to actually see what is it that we can be doing while we're here. So this is the highest karam, the highest task to undertake. And so what we're saying is to live in a certain way in accordance with your highest purpose is your taram. And the only ways, the only ones who are truly living this, the only ones who are fully conscious and live a life truly of taram are what we would call the enlightened ones or the awakened ones, which Guruji also mentioned in the last verse as Tithe Sohan Panch Parvan. The Panch, the saints, are the ones who are living this and they're the ones who are beautiful, their faces are radiant, they're living in an enlightened way. So once you realize that this is your path, this is what you're here to do, and you've had this kind of realization that my own physical body, my own identity isn't the most important thing, 
that we need to attach to, then where do you go from there? What's the progress? What, how do you progress once your perception of your own being has been altered? Guruji goes on to say, Gyan khand ka akho karam. So Guruji says that the next state is Gyan khand, a state of being awakened, the awakened or the realization state. Gyan khand ka akho karam. Of the awakened state, now I narrate the way. I narrate the qualities, the karam. I narrate the ways of the awakening state. So what we do with our whole life, what the ordinary person does, is we concentrate on our life story. Our whole focus is on our own pursuits, our own challenges in life and our own successes and failures in life, our achievements. And when this individual awareness has been broken, then Guruji now talks about our minds becoming expansive. So what we're talking about is to progress from this individual reality, this individual perspective that we live with, and to see that we've been missing something all along, that there's a greater story. So Guruji calls this this state of awakening, this wisdom that you get that, that life isn't about you. To understand that there's a bigger picture being told here. And Guruji has mentioned that right early on when he talked about Sabana Likyao Vodi Kalam, that there is this one great pen that is writing the ultimate story, but you're so co concentrated on just your own character that you miss the entire play. So when we understand that our perception has been holding us back, when the perception of your own self has been changed, then you get elevated to beyond this body-mind identity. You don't just identify with your body and your mind, you now look towards creation. You can now see more than what you could see before. So you don't recognize yourself as the center of the universe. You live in a state of awe, in a state of wonderment. It's as though your eyes have been opened for the first time. And this is where your individual concerns and your individual suffering now begin to dissolve because now you're able to see that you've been so focused on yourself that that focus on yourself is what made you suffer. When the focusing on the self becomes less, then your suffering also becomes less. So you're now world-focused or universe-focused. So we can talk about this be being the difference between individual consciousness and universal consciousness. If we now pair this up with something that we introduced a few verses ago, the seven stages of enlightenment according to Yoga Vishishta, Gyan Khand could correspond to now the third and the fourth stages according to that seven-step plan. So the third stage according to that is called Tanamanasi. And what that means is, simply translated, is this thinning of the mind, where you're now not so focused on the individualized self, that individualized thought is now becoming less and less. So you're not distracted by the world and what you can consume from the world, you're now looking outwards at a different way of looking at the world. So that's the Namanasi. And Sattvapati, which is the fourth one, is what they call the awakened state or awakening of spiritual wisdom. So we can see that that maps quite nicely to what Guruji will start talking about here, which is Gyan Khandaka Akokaram. A really interesting thing to note is that when we look at the Vedas, the Hindu scriptures, generally the content within the Vedas has been broken into three different categories. So you, look, you can look at the Vedas and you can look at any of the verses within there and they fall into one of three different categories. And those categories are also known as Khands. The first category is known as Karam Khand. So you can look at the Vedas and there will be instructions about the way to live your life, the right deeds, the spiritual or the pious actions to do in life, the right practices 
the holy way of living, those within the Vedas have been described as the Karam Khands. And another type of content within the Vedas is called Upasana Khand, which is the types of meditations or the ways of worship. So one is the ways of living in terms of the right actions to do, the other is the ways of worshipping or the ways of meditating and that's called Upasana Khand. And the third type of content that you see in the Vedas is called Gyan Khand and that is the wisdom that is within the Vedas of what is ultimate reality. So where the, the Vedas and particularly the Upanishads, they are talking about the, the super being the supreme being, the oneness which is called Brahm, that ultimate oneness and this Gyankad also includes what we would call the sciences, so cosmology and study of the stars and all that. So it's very interesting to know that very similar words have been used to describe the contents of the Vedas which is Karamkhand, Upasanakhand and Gyankhand. And Guruji here is talking about Gyankhand as being the second step. So Guru mention, mentions Gyankhand ka akho karam. Now I shall narrate the characteristics of the second stage which is Gyankhand. Guruji goes on to say, Kete pavan pani vaisantar kete kaan mahes. Kete, we've seen this word before, means how many or so many. Pavan pani vaisantar so winds, waters and fires, all of these words don't have an ankur, so these are the plural versions of this word. So many winds, waters and fires, kete kaan mahes. So many Krishnas, kaan and mahes, shivas. So many Krishnas and shivas. So in the last verse, Guruji already mentioned that the earth was made up of wind, water and fire. So Guruji talks about Pavanapani Agni Patal, this which Tarti Thaprakhi Tamsal. So this stage is now less about knowledge about how the earth is made and, and sort of the elements of the, the world and more about an awareness of their existence, an awareness of how much they infiltrate all of life. And this is now the beginning of what we're talking about, which is elevating yourself just from knowledge within the mind and an understanding, which is what Taramkhand was about, was an understanding of where life should be for you individually. And now this is an awareness, which is that you're just in awe of their existence. So when Guruji talks in this way, we can see that Guruji is going back to some similar styles that he's used in earlier verses, where he's just singing in praise of everything. He's in awe of it. He is in wonderment. So Guruji says, how many winds, how many waters, how many fires? And we think about this, that how many beings on earth rely on the air? How many beings breathe in air, have air within their lungs or within their being? We're talking about the trillions. So how many trillions of beings have breath of air within them? And how many beings exist in air? How many airborne beings are there? How many birds? How many insects? We even see in the wonder of nature flying fish, where fish will come out of the, the water and they will glide in the air for long periods of time before going back in. So how many amazing creatures are there that are in the air? And then how many waters? How many bodies of water are there? How many rivers, how many lakes, how many streams, how many oceans? They say that within the human body itself, the cells are made up of 90% of water. So we ourselves are covered with water, filled with water. And every single being like that is so reliant on water itself. So how many beings are there that are made of water? And how many beings are there that rely on water? If we talk about so many trillions of beings in the air, then in the oceans how, and in the rivers and in the seas, how many insects, how many small fish and other plant life and animal life exists in these waters. So this is really just a continuous amazement about air 
and an amazement of water and all the things that interact with it. Now, all the beings on earth rely on either air or water to survive. And what the air and the water does is it keeps their fire of life alive. If we take life as being a fire that's burning inside you, then you rely on either air or water to keep that fire alive. So Guruji is now saying, Kete Vesantar, how much fire, how much fire is, is there in, in burning inside all of us? And even if we look at the sun, it is made of fire. If we look at all the stars that you see in the night sky, they are all balls of fire. And even science now knows that at the core of every rock planet is essentially a ball of fire. So we live on a ball of fire, molten rock. And we survive because of a ball of fire, the sun. And even when the sun is not here, that ball of fire reflects in the moon and all the stars that we can see at night are also fire. So fire is everywhere as well. And Guruji talks about how many Krishnas and how many Shivas there are. And so if anyone was under some sort of delusion that we only worship one deity, that there is only ever one Krishna or ever one Shiva, well, Guru is saying that there is so many. If Shiva means the destroyer, then there is so much destruction happening. Everyone and everything has the ability to destroy something else. So everyone has the power of Shiva within them, that destruction ability. So when Guruji is looking around, he says, there isn't one Shiva that I can see. I can see billions and trillions of Shivas all around me. We can also take the same lines where Guruji can talk about meditators. Kete pavarna pani vesantar. How many sages are living off breath alone? How many sages are reliant on meditation on breath? How many are meditating on the banks of holy rivers? How many are going to sacred pools and bathing in the waters? How many are taking the ashes of fire and smearing their body with it? So even within meditation, there's a reliance on either wind, water or fire. How many people are meditating on Krishnas and Shivas? We talked about in Taramkhand in the last verse that it was reliant on a definition that Guru had already given in Pauri 16, where Guruji started talking about Panch Parman, Panch Pradhan, that that is the definition of where mankind needs to get to. So that is the archetype, archetypal human being, the ideal human being, and where we need to be heading to is all described in the Panch Parman, Pauri 16. And Taramkhand means to walk on that path of becoming the supreme human being, which is the punch. And that body ended with a statement of awe, with a statement of wonderment. That what can I say, what can I describe about nature? I'm not even a sacrifice, even once. So it's that same principle now that Guruji is applying, which is this wonderment. Interestingly, if body 16 is Taramkhand, then in Pauli 17, 18 and 19, Guruji actually goes into this state of wonderment. And Guruji starts by talking about asank, asank jap, asank pao, asank puja, asank taptao. There Guruji talks about so many, countless millions and millions. And in the same way, after Taramkhand, we're now seeing that Guruji is applying the same principles to Gyankhand. So what we can start to see is actually throughout Japji Sahib, Guruji has been planting the seeds of all of these different concepts. Guru has already been mentioning, so when we talk about Panch, we've already understood that concept. When Guruji talks about Taram, he's already introduced this idea of Tol Taram Dayakaput, that Taram is an offspring of compassion. And here, where Guruji is using the word skete, we've already understood how to be in this state, because Guru has already introduced that. So all throughout Japji Sahib, Guruji has, prepa has prepared us for this final few verses, which is now putting all the pieces of the jigsaw together. 
If Guruji was showing you the pieces before, now Guruji is putting them all together and saying this is now the sequential series, the steps that you need to take. But Guru isn't now relying on this to try and explain those ideas. Guru is now just bringing them together. So we already know what the experience of Gyan Khand is. And we can see that, that Guru has used this kind of amazement and wonderment analogy. So in the Pauris from 17 to 19, they were all about Asank and they were all ending with this idea of Kudrat Kavan Kahavichar, what can I say about the glory of creation? Pauri 24 was all about your limitlessness, Antna Sifti, Gehenna Ant, Antna Karne, Dehenna Ant. It was all about how infinite you are. In Pauri 25, Guruji started again using this word kete specifically kete mange jod apar kete ganat nahi vichar kete khap tute vikar kete lale mukar pai so by the time you're getting to the gyan khan stage when you're reading japji sahib you should already be in that state of wonderment and a really interesting way to read japji sahib and an interesting way to make japji sahib more of a meditation and less of just a recitation is if you read every single word in japji sahib and every line as a state of wonderment. So if rather than reading Ikkuankar as there is this oneness, read Ikkuankar as almost as though you're saying, wow, there is this oneness. Wow, it has, it has existence as its name. And you can read all of Japji Sahib in that way and it makes the whole process a very, very enlightening, very spiritual and very connecting process where you're connecting with it. Try that if you read Japji Sahib next time, where every line is a statement of wow. What you will realize is then you're not using Japji Sahib as just a knowledge feed. You're using it as your meditation. So Japji Sahib and Gurbani becomes your Naam Simran rather than telling you about Naam Simran that you then have to go and do some, somewhere else or at some other time. And we can see just going towards the 27th Bawadi, Sodar, Guruji then asks this question. What is your door like? What is your house like? So dar keha, so ghar keha, jit sarb samale, where you reside. And there Guruji again uses these kete words. Guruji says that at your door, there is so much rag happening. There is so much melody. Kete rag parisyo kahiyan, kete gavan hare. And then Guruji again brings in this concept that he's talked about here at the beginning of Gyan Khand, where Guruji says in the Pauli 27, 27. So Guru has already introduced all these concepts to us before that your, your air, your water and your fires, they're singing your praises. So we have to remember all of those when we're talking about Gyan Khand is about they're not just around, they're all singing the praises of that oneness. So to live in praise is Guru Nanak's message. This is the fundamental difference to Guru Nanak's approach towards spiritual development than to any other approach so far. If we can say that some of the Islamic techniques is about submission to the will of God, in, within Islam the whole idea is submission, that we have to submit to the will of God, which means we have to follow the rules properly. And if you look at Hindu, mythology and Hindu scripture, their whole focus is on liberation. How do you liberate yourself from reincarnation? But Gurbani doesn't take any of those two to be the most important way that man can actually survive within this Kaljuk age. Gurbani says that actually don't focus on your liberation and don't just blindly surrender to the will of God and to the rules, actually make it a surrender and include a praise. Praise is the most important thing, that within praise that you can actually completely merge with that divine. So Guru's approach, and this is why we can see that within Guru Granth Sahib Ji, the whole focus is praise rather than moksha. In fact, Gurbani goes as far as saying, Mukht na chahu. I'm not even interested in my mukti. My mukti becomes a statement of ego. I'm not interested. Raj na chahu, mukht na chahu. I don't want any great glory and I don't even want liberation. I just want to fall at your feet. So it's ultimate submission Guru is showing and which is why we can see that the whole of Gurbani is written to music. Because music is the meditation. Singing, the praise, is the meditation of Guru Nanak. 
And we even say that Guru Nanak Dev Ji came in the age of Kaljuk and he brought Kirtan. Kirtan Kaljuk Pratanna. So this is the, 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 the most effective method in this dark age where we're so lost within our mind, praise and singing is the method. And this is what Guru calls real wisdom. This is what Guru calls Gyan. Gyan isn't knowledge. Gyan isn't textbook wisdom. It is being in this awakened state of awe and enlightenment. That is Gyan Khand. And this is Guru Nanak's Taram. This is the religion of, of Guru Nanak Dev Ji, which is the most effective way for mankind to live, is to live in praise, in awe of the, and in wonderment of the divine. Kete barme kaadat kadye roop rang ke ves. So Guruji says, so many Brahmas, there isn't just one Brahma, there are countless Brahmas that are kaadat kadye, that are forming and creating. What are they creating? They're creating lots of roop, lots of different things, lots of forms. Roop rang ke ves, that has many colors and have many different types, many variations. So Guru is saying that there's so many creators continuously creating. And if we all have the ability to destroy, we also all contain the ability to create. We're always able to create new life and create new things within life of many different colors, of many different shapes and sizes. So every being is a creator. Every animal has the ability to create. Every plant creates the next plant. So from us, from beings, new beings are being created. So we become the Brahmas. And if you think about the number of beings on the planet, then there are trillions and trillions and trillions of beings on the planet. They're all Brahmas. And Guru is saying that I now see Brahma everywhere. I see Shiva everywhere. I see Krishna everywhere. So every snowflake is completely unique, is a new creation, every blade of grass. Every time a volcano erupts, it creates something new because that lava then hardens and you see a new volcano. Every time the river flows, it carries new things along its riverbeds, it picks up things as it goes along. So you never actually have the same river. The river is constantly moving and changing. So at any moment, the river is new. And Gurbani uses a very beautiful line that says, Sahib Mera Neet Nama. That at every moment, my master is new. Sahib Mera, my master, is new at every single moment. And this is what Guruji is showing us here, that there's so much Brahma happening all around us. This creativity is known as Brahma. And it's all around us. And it's ever-changing, constantly changing. Ketya karam pumi mer kete kete tu upades. So Karampumi, we talked about in the last verse that earth is Karampumi, the land where you can earn your karam. And this is the only space where you can do that in this lifetime. And then the idea is that heaven or hell are Pogbumi, the place where you actually reap the fruits of your, your hard work. So Karampumi is known as earth, the place where you can earn karam. But Gurbani even now says, that Ketya Karampumi, there isn't just one earth, there isn't just one place where this, this game is being played. There are infinite earths and infinite lands, uh, a space where, where people can come, where beings can create Karam within their own lives. So, interestingly, Gurbani here has been using Kete so far, but now Guruji uses a variation of the word which is Ketya. So, we can see from the words that Gurbani is, is attaching the Kete to is that Kete is used for masculine words, Ketya is used for feminine words. Ketya karma pumi mer Kete, mer means mountains. And Kete tu upades, so, so many karam lands and mountains many, so many saints like through and their upadesh, their teachings. So we can see that there are so many meditators. This isn't the only place where meditation is happening. In fact, there are billions and billions of lands and billions of planets where meditation is happening. And traditionally, they would, in, this, in, in the Indian tradition, you would see that meditators would either go to a forest or they would go up to the mountains. 
So Guru is saying there are millions of mountains where people are sitting and meditating and on each mountains there are infinite number of people who have gone and meditated on that. And Guruji gives an example of Trupagat who went to the forest to meditate. So it's a very um, interesting story that, that Trupagat is the story of a small prince, a child prince who lived with his mother and the king but the king had a second wife. So the Guru is telling us the story and Guru also says that we have to learn this story, we have to know this story because later on Gurbani says that Ram Japoji Aise Aise Tru Prahalad Japyo Harjase. You have to learn to meditate the way the great saints like Tru and Prahalad meditated. So that's why it's important to know this story. So in this story there is a child prince known as Tru. He's about five years old and he has been rejected by the king. So the king is in love with the second wife and the son of the second wife. So the king spends very little time with his first wife, the mother of Thru and Thru itself. And Thru being a little child longs for the love of his father, longs to play and sit in the lap of his father, the king, like he sees his stepbrother doing. His stepbrother is getting all the attention. And when he doesn't get that attention, he runs crying back to his mother and he says to his mother, why am I being treated like this? I'm, am I not the, the son of a king? Are you not the wife of, of a king? Or are you actually just a maid? Are you just a servant in this castle? And this story has been recorded and exactly as I'm explaining it to you has actually been written by Pai Gurdasji itself. Um, so the story itself says that the mother replied that I am a queen, you are the son of a king, but I haven't got good fortune in my life. I haven't clearly done enough meditation. I haven't done enough bhakti in my life. And so I am now forced to live as a servant, even though I've been born into this life where I should have been a queen. So I'm a queen, but I haven't meditated enough. And that's why I don't have the good fortune to live the life of a queen. This sets through on a lifelong mission that says that actually what we need to do is we need to meditate. So he goes as a child longing for the love of his father and says, well, I will get the love of my father if I go and meditate because that's the innocence of this child. So Thru runs off to the forest and he has no idea how to meditate. He just sits there scared amongst all the, the wilderness, the, the, the wild animals and things like that. And another saint known as Narad comes across this child and tells him how to meditate, shows him this idea of Naam and using Naam as a mantra to meditate. And it says that Thru then became a very big meditator. And so he no longer requires even uh, the, the glories of being a prince and, and, and the glory of having the um, riches and wealth of a kingdom because he's now realized the wealth of meditation. So this in summary is this whole idea of how a child through innocence and through love wanting the love of his father, learned how to meditate with Naam. And it says that many people tried to shake him from that meditation and tried to distract him, but he was not able to be distracted. That meditation was now so powerful. So Guruji is giving this example that there have been millions of stories like this of meditators who have been like through and who have learned the Updesh, the teachings of Naam, and have also taught the teachings of Naam. Kete Ind Chand Sur Kete Kete Mandal Des. So, so many Indras, so many moons and suns, many, so many planets and spa in space. Mandal Des. Mandal means out in space, the lands that are in space. There are millions of moons and millions of suns and many Indras, which is the king of gods. So many Siddhs and Buddhs. Kete Siddh Buddh Nath Kete. Kete Devi Ves, so many Siddhs, which are these meditators with spiritual powers, so many Buddhas, there isn't just one Buddha, there have been millions before him and millions will come after him. And Nath are the yogic masters, Nath Kete, Kete Devi Ves, Devi means the female goddesses, there are infinite number of female goddesses of many different Ves, many different forms. Kete Dev Danav Mun Kete Kete Ratan Sumund. So, so many Devi have been talked about in the last line. Now, Guru is talking about Dev. Kete Dev. So, so many demigods and Danav and their opponents. So, like you've got your Ravan to your Ram. 
you've got all of these different great stories of, of demigods, but they're also fighting demons. So Guru says, so many gods and so many demons and munis, so many silent meditating sages. So many oceans of jewels, Kete Ratan Samund. So the word Ratan Samund comes from another word which is being used to mean ocean is Ratanagar. Ratanagar means the ocean of jewels. So that's another word that is generally used to mean an ocean. And Guru is then using that old idea that there are many Ratanagars. There aren't just the few that we see on the planet Earth. There are infinite number of oceans and Guru is talking about this in context with all of the things that he's in wonderment of. Ketya Kani, Ketya Bani, Kete Paat Narind. Kani are the four sources of creation. So interestingly, Guru is saying that there aren't just four sources of creation. There are infinite sources of creation and the four sources are Andajade, Jeraj, Utpuj and Setaj. So these are the, the uh, animals that are born from an egg or are born from the womb or are born from the earth like plants or are born from sweat like small bacteria and microbes. So Guru is saying that there are infinite beings that have come from these four but there are also infinite different creation sources itself. And Ketya Bani and they all have their own language. There are infinite number of languages. And Paat Narind. Paat Narind are both words for Paat Narind, which are kings. And within all of these different types of people, they, own ha they all have their own hierarchy and they all have their own kings. So even within the animal kingdom, plant kingdom, they have their own hierarchy. So there are infinite number of kings. So there's always this idea in, 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 in ancient traditions that you worship the king of the land because they are a messenger of God. So Guru is saying, no, we don't need to do that. There is no one king worth uh, worshipping and Guru Gobind Singh Ji has also used this whole idea that the oneness that we're talking about is the king of all kings Rajan, Raj, Banan, Ban, Devan, Dev, Upmana, Upmamahan that I only give my praises to the king of kings Ketya Surti Sevak Kete Nanak Antna Ant So, so many Surti, Surti is the plural word being used here, surti, which is there isn't just one thing to be contemplated on. Millions of people are contemplating on millions of different ideas. It means that there is no one who has the complete understanding of that oneness. Even the ones who have merged with the oneness cannot say that I fully know it, that I understand it, that I can describe it. Gurbani has said time and time again that you cannot be described. And this is again how Guru Nanak Dev Ji ends this, that there are so many meditators, Sevak, with so many different meditations and so many different understandings. Ketya Surti Sevak Kete, Guru Nanak Dev Ji says, Nanak Antna Ant, that there is no end to what you are and what you've created. So this is Gyan Khand. Gyan Khand is to be in this state where Guru Nanak Dev Ji is experiencing the vastness of the universe. His individualized self has been broken and now he's talking about the experience of not just relating to the self. We spend all of our time in the prison, in the shell of our individualized self. We think that our whole experience is just the experience of the body and the mind. But Guru Nanak Dev Ji is saying once that shell has been cracked, then we are now spilling out into the universe itself. So. With the awareness of this oneness, of this vastness, your self-identity now begins to diminish. This isn't the final step. This isn't the final stage of the five-stage process. Guruji is just saying that in Gyan, in praise, in awareness of everything else, you lose your awareness of yourself. So once you see this expanse, you get lost in it. And Guruji is trying to describe this inf infinity of nature and it's endless and where the vastness becomes his vastness. He doesn't relate to himself, he relates to the vastness. So Guru is using a very poetic way to convey his wonderment of the world. And so Guruji is trying to show that this is the heightened state of awareness that we can be on. And if you think about it, the easiest analogy that we can use is when you take a small child, for them everything is amazing. You give them a feather and they're in absolute awe of it. 
you show them some pebbles, some stones, everything that they see, they're seeing for the first time. And this is what Guru Nanak Dev Ji is saying, is that it's like I'm seeing everything for the first time. Now I can see that Shiva and Brahma is everywhere. What I thought was just water here, now I can see water everywhere. I can see wind, I can see fire everywhere. So this is this amazement. And if ever you want to understand that feeling, you just need to look at a small child and see how the smallest things in the world feel absolutely amazing to the child. So Guru Nanak Dev Ji is saying that even though there is so many numerous things, Guru never forgets this idea, but it always go, goes back to the one. Guruji isn't saying that there's millions of waters. Guruji is saying that these millions of waters are you. They're a part of you. And we see that in, in, in Body 27, where Guruji is saying, that they're singing ultimately to you. They are ultimately a part of your song. So let us compare Guru Nanak Dev Ji's state of mind that he's describing with our own state of mind. Where are we and how do we get to this? We think that we are the center of the universe. That's how we act, that's how we live. So Guru Nanak Dev Ji suggests that we are nothing, that we have to be in the vastness of the universe instead. So the emphasis on this stage is very much about experience being your wisdom. It isn't about textbook knowledge. Here, Guru Nanak Dev Ji hasn't really talked anything about learning new things. Guruji is talking about experiencing the vastness. So, Gyan Khand is really the realm or the state of being in this awakened experience. And this is when the wisdom really comes home. This is when you really understand everything that you've learned up to now, is when you live in this state of awareness, and this is the awakening that is starting to happen. So really we should translate Gyankhand as awakening state rather than a wisdom state. It isn't a knowledge that you know, it is a knowledge that you experience. So now you don't just know the world, you experience the world, and Guruji says that with Guru Prasad, of course, you will start to now let go of your ego. This is the next step of letting go of your ego and living in divine awareness. So that's the end of Gyan Khand. Next week we will continue and looking at the third step. Vaigurji ka Khalsa, Vaigurji ki Fateh.